Welcome to the Global Energy and Environmental Law Podcast. Today is February the 13th, 2015. The podcast series is a product of the Committee on International Environmental Law of the American branch of the International Law Association. My name is Mayanna Dellinger. I research and write on issues of national and international environmental law and how these issues intersect with business aspects. I'm a co-chair of the International Environmental Law Committee of ABILA. Today, we welcome Professor of Law Mary Wood of the University of Oregon School of Law. Professor Wood is the Philip H. Knight Professor of Law and Faculty Director of the school's Environmental and Natural Resources Law Program. Professor Wood has published extensively on climate crisis, national resources, and native law issues. She originated the approach called the Atmospheric Trust Litigation to hold governments worldwide accountable for reducing carbon pollution within their jurisdictions, and her research is being used in cases and petitions brought on behalf of children and youth throughout the United States and in other countries. She is a frequent speaker on global warming issues and has received national and international attention for her sovereign trust approach to global climate policy. So, Professor Wood, could you explain, first of all, what is the atmospheric trust and the atmospheric trust litigation, in your opinion? Well, the atmospheric trust just applies a very ancient uh, principle of law called the public trust doctrine to the atmosphere. The public trust doctrine has been part of our nation's history since the beginning, and it basically means that government, as trustee, of our resources must protect them for the people who are the beneficiaries. So this is a a very established doctrine. It's been upheld by the Supreme Court numerous times. And the atmospheric trust principle just extends the public trust doctrine to the atmosphere, saying that the atmosphere is a natural resource crucial to our survival, and therefore it's held as a public trust asset for and must be managed for the benefit of the people. Interesting. Uh, Where do you think this finds its origin? I know that you mentioned Roman law and uh, similar aspects. Um, Do you know of any international aspects of this, or or where does this trace from? Well, it all traces back literally to Roman law, um, back to the Institutes of Justinian, which said that certain things are held in common, and those include um, the seas, the shores of the seas, the rivers, the wildlife, and the air. And um, so this principle of public property rights has been a part of legal um, society and civilization literally since um, Roman times. And different nations uplifted that principle in their legal systems. And so we actually find the public trust doctrine in many countries throughout the world, including the United States and um, African, some African nations, the Philippines, India, um, Canada, and other places. It's, it's very linked to democracy, however, because it's a restraint upon government. And so what we don't see is its presence a lot of times in totalitarian governments. Right. So can you give uh, the listeners some examples of how this might operate in the non-atmospheric context, for instance, in relation to um, oceans, rivers, um, and so forth? Yeah. So how well, the public trust operates in those contexts? Yeah, so the public trust basically um, says that government, as the trustee, has to manage these resources, all of the ones you mentioned, actually, as a trust that will continue to benefit future generations. 
And as trustee, the government can't just do what it wants in its discretion or follow its political whims. It has to actually um, uh, manage the trust according to strict fiduciary duties. And those include the duty of protection, the duty of restoration where the trust has been damaged, um, the duty to recover natural resource damages where there's been damage. And in these various um, resources that you mentioned, you just apply that fiduciary standard to whatever action is at hand. So if we're talking about pollution of a river, for example, we would apply the trust to say that the government cannot pollute the river so as to substantially impair its quality. So substantial impairment is really the key here uh, with pollution cases, and it's that term that has appeared in many of the public trust cases we have on the books. You know, there's all sorts of different applications. There might be um, a water appropriations issue where the federal government or the state government, probably a state government, would be appropriating water to a private party. Well, that too is subject to the trust. And state courts have said that the um, government or the government agency cannot appropriate for the benefit of just a private party, that such appropriation must be to protect the public or promote the public interest, and it cannot substantially impair the waters remaining. Interesting. So in the atmospheric, atmospheric context, uh, then rather, what exactly do you think judges then should do? I know a lot of people probably uh, will think that when it comes to climate change, it really should be the state and uh, federal governments around the world that should take action. But um, how do you see judges playing an active role here? What, what do you want them to do, actually? Well, there's a, an entire global litigation campaign underway now, organized by a group called Our Children's Trust. And I'm not a lawyer in that campaign, but I speak about it quite a bit. And the campaign consists of um, state actions in the form of lawsuits and petitions all across this country and in some other countries as well. And all of the lawsuits and petitions ask the very same thing. They ask the court to order the government agency to come up with a plan to protect climate um, according to a scientific prescription that's designed to prevent irreversible uh, tipping points. And so the court doesn't actually order what can be done. The court orders the other two branches of government, or, or just one branch, as the case may be, to actually do its job. And so I think everyone would agree this is a job for the legislatures and a job for the agencies, but they're clearly sitting idle um, as this planet's... Um, uh, health continues to decline, and now we're near very serious tipping points. And so the courts are asked to step in at this urgent time and just force the agencies to come up with a plan for their jurisdiction to lower carbon dioxide by the amount scientists say is necessary to recover our climate. And that's right now 7% global emissions reduction a year. Interesting. I'm looking at a case uh, that sounds like it's related to uh, uh, our children's trust that you just mentioned, and that's uh, the 2012 um, holding in the New Mexico case where um, a couple of teenagers sued the governor and the state relying on the public trust doctrine. 
And in that case, um, a federal district court ordered the case to go forward and ruled that plaintiffs have made a substantive allegation that the state is ignoring the atmosphere with respect to greenhouse gas emissions. Do you know of other similar cases like that, or what is the status of the lawsuits that you're uh, mentioning to the best of your knowledge? Yeah, well, all of these lawsuits are part of the same campaign. So um, there's cases from New Mexico and Texas and Alaska and Washington, Oregon, um, mm-hmm. and all over the place. And they're, mm-hmm. uh, I believe our Children's Trust is continuing to file these cases. So um, the status of each one is different according to you know the progression of litigation in that state. Um, <clears throat> they're being brought all the time. Um, you know, literally in the coming months, I think more will be brought. There's one key case coming up in Oregon which really the nation is watching um, because it is now the leading case positioned to declare an atmospheric trust. And in that case, also brought by two teenagers, um, alleging you know the very same thing and asking for the same relief as I've described, um, the district court judge at the county level um, basically said, this is a job for the other two branches of government and mm-hmm. dismissed the case. And that mm-hmm. went up on appeal and the mm-hmm. Court of Appeals reversed him and said, no, this is actually the job of a court to declare the rights of the youth as to the public trust and climate. So that case will be heard in um, the Circuit Court of Oregon, um, Circuit County Court of Oregon, March 13th um, of this year. And um, it's a very important case because it is you now positioned to declare the uh, rights in the atmosphere. And if that case comes out with a strong declaration of rights, that will undoubtedly influence courts that are now sitting on other cases brought in other states. That's right. So you think judges might be willing to act um, in this in these kind of cases at all? As you said, it's this is a, to some extent at least a separation of powers issue, but, but you're hopeful, in other words, that they are willing to act? Yeah, um, it's... It's not really a separation, well, I mean, you correctly said it was a separation of powers issue, but I don't think it's a separation of powers problem in that judges have forced other um, branches to act lots of times in the past. They they can easily force um, agencies to come up with plans. They did so in the prison cases, the civil rights cases, treaty fishing cases, some land use cases. And so that's really... Um, it should not be a difficult thing for a court to simply order a plan, especially when you know plans already exist um, to some extent at the state level, at least for climate, and and then supervise the plan to make sure it's being carried out. That seems to me to strike just the right of deference towards the um, other branches, and yet perform the constitutional function of a court. So. I, you know, I'd be very hopeful that if it were just uh, just about the law, um, well, of course this makes sense because <laughs> otherwise the planet, um, if we don't have the legal system stepping in, we might find ourselves very quickly um, over these tipping points, and um, you know that that is an unthinkable sort of outcome, especially when we've got a legal system that should be addressing this massive potential harm. Um, it does come down to judicial courage, and I think there's just no getting around that fact. And so, we'll, um, as the news reports of climate become 
just ever so alarming these days, and as Americans are waking up all over the country, I think that the judges will gain um, greater judicial courage to make these rulings um, because they'll sense that the collective conscience of the country is um, demanding that. That is right. And I think uh, you're mentioning other nations. I think other nations may still be a little, uh, or people in other nations may be a little puzzled again as to why in the world agencies and uh, legislatures <laughs> are not acting. Uh, that, you know, you said yourself that they really are the, uh, the bodies that should do so. Why do you think that that is, that agencies are not um, taking the action that arguably they should have done already here? Well, we actually know exactly why this is happening. Um, we know why our Congress is sitting idle and, and is antagonistic to any climate action. Um, and the reason um, has to do with exactly why the trust was created. So let me explain why and then explain how the trust addresses that. Um, it's a violation of the duty of loyalty, actually, I think, at the bottom of all this. Um, the campaign contributions that have been received by governors and by um, the legislators have put these individual legislators and governors in a position of acting in their own self-interest. In other words, after taking a campaign contribution um, and landing an election, that particular elected official is not very likely to vote in a way that would harm the profit interests of the corporation that put that person into office. Well, that is exactly... <laughs> what the trust um, is geared to avoid. The trust has a very strict rule, applied in the private context at least, called the duty of loyalty. And this says that no trustee may act in um, his or her self-interest. And in fact, if there's even uh, the potential for bias, the decision is invalidated. The decision of the trustee is invalidated. And so this is exactly what we have going on almost as an institutional matter now in the United States of America because the fossil fuel industry has poured so much money into campaigns um, of both parties at the state and federal level, and that political influence has um, filtered down really to every level of government. So in a sense, the trust was made to address this very situation, particularly when our survival resources are at stake. Interesting. Um, you've also used the term captured agencies in this very context. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, a, a captured agency is not what we imagine. When the environmental laws were passed in the 1970s, um, each law had to be carried out by an agency. So by these agencies, we mean the Environmental Protection Agency and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and all the state agencies and so forth. Well, they were always presumed to be neutral players, objective players dedicated to the public interest mm -hmm. and not politicized in any way. And that was the assumption. That's why they got so much discretion to make rules and um, carry out permit systems under these environmental laws. But what in fact happened was this discretion uh, proved a magnet for industry influence. And over decades, since the 1970s when these laws were passed, industry has been pounding the door down at agencies and getting inside and exerting pressure in various ways, not the least of which is, is by funding the governors that oversee these agencies and the president that oversees these agencies. And so industry now has so much of a political lock on our administrative structure 
that they have become captured. And there's there's entire books on this. It's not you know anything anything new. Um, but what is new is that we have to, as as Americans, we have to wake up and start recognizing this because when we are facing a climate crisis that is literally putting um, the survival of our children and grandchildren in jeopardy later in this century, we can't just run to the agencies for a solution as we always have because we have to start recognizing they're very politicized creatures and um, they often act in their own self-interest, which means political self-interest. In a captured agency, that means serving the industry, not the public. So how do you see the fossil fuel industry and uh, in general in this context? Surely they're not going to just sit back and uh, let these lawsuits happen without uh, doing something to fight against, uh, the, uh, against this whole issue legally. What, uh, what is your opinion of how they might be able to prevail since you yourself said that they, uh, they have tremendous resources and they're very powerful? Yeah, well, they are powerful and they have intervened in a couple lawsuits Um, The American Manufacturers Association intervened in the federal lawsuit. Um, The Obama administration lined up exactly with the American Manufacturers Association and um, took the same position that there's no federal trust owed to the youth of the nation. So in many ways, um, the industry and government are indistinguishable in some of these lawsuits, which is exactly the problem. But Mm -hmm. it should be noted that the lawsuits are not, not actually against the industry. The lawsuits are against the government for not taking action to lower carbon dioxide emissions throughout their sectors. And so, but nonetheless, I'm sure they're going to try and step in to uh, to have uh, to have holdings that would be more favorable towards them. Yeah, and undoubtedly. Seeing. And so we'll just see what happens. If you know uh, the the math, the carbon math is becoming very clear. the The industry must be phased out at some point um, if this planet is going to be habitable. So, you know, scientists have done the carbon math and have determined that the industry has on its reserves five times the amount of fossil uh, fossil fuels that would push this planet beyond two degrees Celsius, which alone would be a catastrophe. And so the industry is in a very strange position where there are demonstrations across the country, there are Um, investment decisions, pulling out of fossil fuel investments. Um, There's people pledging to get arrested. The industry is really becoming the bad guy in this for not taking proactive action on climate. And instead of figuring out their logical phase out, what they're actually doing is, I think, making a run on the resource, trying to cram as many projects through as possible before the hammer comes down. So here in the Pacific Northwest, for example, there have been proposals, uh, active proposals now, for uh, over a dozen facilities. And if you include British Columbia, there would be 24 facilities for exports of coal, natural gas, and dirty uh, oils from tar sands. And those Proposals have come up just in the last two to three years. So clearly, industry is making a run on the resource in response to all this public pressure to move from a fossil fuel economy to a fossil free economy. Do you think that they ever will be um, willing to do so? Bill McKibben and others have uh, 
pretty persuasively described how they might never actually willingly uh, stop producing coal and oil because that's the very industry that they're in and businesses um, aren't obviously interested in discontinuing their own businesses. Um, so what do you think it would take to make them um, stop um, exploring those resources altogether if you see that as a must? Well, um, that's a very good question. I think I think many people, not me, but many people are exploring criminal liability um, on the part of some of these corporations and some of the corporate actors. Again, that's not my area of expertise, but um, clearly in light of um, the knowing consequences and, and, and also just massive death, I mean, let's be frank about it, uh, climate crisis doesn't just, you know, jeopardize ski resorts. It causes, it's going to cause massive death if it goes into uncontrollable heating. And so certainly um, criminal sanctions would, would do something. I think the divestment um, movement right now is gaining so much momentum across campuses. The Rockefeller um, Fund withdrew, has pledged to withdraw its fossil fuel holdings. And then you've got the legal suits um, through our children's trust. And so through all these um, various pressure points, I think the industry is it's got to be regrouping what you know why it hasn't figured out how to move into renewable energy i don't know it might be just a matter of um so much investment already buried in these fossil fuels that financially um they they believe they will have an outcome that's uh, not one of stranded investments, but uh, a lot of people are thinking, actually, they will just have stranded investments. Right. In some European countries, a lot of nations actually have moved uh, towards a carbon-free economy. Uh, but, yeah, we're a little bit behind in this country, it seems, in that respect. Does that frustrate you that um, some countries are moving ahead in the right direction, so to speak, if you see this from an environmental <laughs> point of view? But others, China and India, still use like, Russia, using massive amounts of uh, coal and oil. Does that frustrate you at all, seen from sort of a global point of view? Well, it's just incredible, really. It's, it's incredible that um, the political leaders of this country, in particular, have been so slow and, and are just basically sitting idle while the house burns down. Um, from the global perspective, what's really needed is less emphasis, I think, on these treaty negotiations, which really are just negotiations, and more emphasis on a frame of pure obligation. And one thing about the public trust that it tends to add, although not in dictatorships, um, but it tends to provide a sense of mutual obligation worldwide because the trust is a global concept. And so if we look at the atmosphere as the global asset, all of these nations are co-trustees of that asset, and they have obligations towards one another and towards their own citizens to protect that asset. So um, the, the frustrating thing has been that for so many years, citizens of all these different countries, not just America, have viewed climate negotiations as negotiations rather than in a property framework of you know, we all live in this house, so to speak, and this right. is our shared property, and we have duties towards one another. Right. Interesting. You've said uh, that climate change, as you see it, is not an environmental issue. Could you explain that? Yeah. Uh, the environmental issues that people think about are, you know, toxic waste dumps and pollution to streams and maybe extinct species here and there. The uh, climate crisis is an existential issue. It's also been called a civilizational issue. It's because it is so 
far beyond anything we've ever experienced. It is not just a piece of the environment. It's an entire life system on this planet that if we let this go into runaway heating, you know, we're going to face massive wipeouts of all species, including the human species. And so I try to get it out of the environmental box because there's a lot of baggage with that box. Um, people think of statutes as the solution. Well, clearly the statutes aren't going to solve the problem completely here. And that's why I, I try to emphasize it's not an environmental issue. It's, an envi it's a civilizational issue that affects all of us. Very interesting and a very serious uh, aspect, as you say. And, uh, nonetheless, I recognize, I think, a smile in your voice and a positive attitude. <laughs> <laughs> How do you remain uh, so positive in this respect regarding your views on possible solutions to climate change from uh, your theory's point of view, given the current stalemate situation to this problem seen from a global point of view? Well, I do see citizens rising up all over this country <clears throat> and all over the world in a way that I have never seen before. And they are starting to really attack the fundamental rot in government, and that is the corporate control over our economic system, our, our governmental agencies, um, the power of corporations. And so, you know, citizens are really getting engaged now, whereas during the era of environmental law from the 1970s to just a few years ago, um, they were just really passive. They they didn't know what was going on around them. And now people finally are waking up. So this is a race against time. And the only way I can be positive is to know that I am, you know, doing what I can in this crisis. And I uh, I just have to have confidence that people around the world are doing what they can too. And what we all have to do right now is wake up the rest of the people who may not be engaged. Um, but do I have hope? You know, I don't even use that term anymore because hope to me signifies passive uh, observations or you hope things will turn out okay. No, this is all hands on deck time. It's time for virtually every citizen to come forth because the problem is um, a global scale. It's like it's beyond the scale of any world war we've been through. And so it, to solve it, it's going to take everybody, every single person. Great. That sounds good. And uh, <laughs> thank you very much for your time. This was Professor Wood from the University of Oregon School of Law talking about her atmospheric trust litigation theory. Professor Wood, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Global Energy and Environmental Law Podcast. Our podcast series is available on iTunes.